All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to John 19. John 19. As you're turning there, let me remind you that you are in a bilingual service. And so if you need uh, or would like to hear the message in Spanish, there are listening devices in the back that you can grab so you can hear this in your heart language. John 19, we come to Jesus being led to Calvary's hill to die on a cruel cross. And there's a sense in which what I want to talk about today, I want to frame it in terms of of running a race. When Shelly and I were first dating in 2007, she was training for a marathon. How many of you know how long a marathon is? Anybody know? What is it? How many? What's the distance? Point two, right? Don't forget the point two. 26.2 miles. My wife trained for months for that race, uh, ran it, and I asked her later, what was the best part? And of course, she said the end, right? Uh, Coming to the finish line, seeing after 20 some odd miles that the the end is close was the most exciting part of the race for her, and finishing, running across that line, and knowing she'd accomplished an incredible feat, 26.2 miles. What I want you to think about with me this morning is, there is there's a sense in which what we're going to see Jesus do is finish an incredible race set before him. We're going to see Jesus run across the finish line of sorts in the purpose and the plan God has given him. We've watched Jesus run uh, courses in this race for weeks now leading up to this But there's something very special about what we're going to see Jesus do today that was not only significant in the moment, in the time in which Jesus lived, but it's eternally significant for you and me today. Okay? So with that kind of loaded in your mind, let's look at John 19. Would you stand to your feet as we start in the second part of verse 16 and going down through verse 37? John chapter 19, starting in the second the latter part of verse 16. It says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered him, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who sat, saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, we pray now that you would remove distraction, remove thinking about what we're going to do next, and you would help us be totally present in this moment to hear from you. God, would you help us as we hear from you to not just be hearers of your word. Father, would you also help us be doers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want to show you three laps or courses that Jesus runs today in this passage as he finishes the race set before him. The first lap is I want to show you that Jesus finishes our suffering for sin. Once Jesus had been sentenced to death, the Bible tells us that he took his cross and carried it outside of the city to a place called Golgotha. Now, in Latin, that would be called Calvary. That's why we often associate it with Calvary, because the Latin Vulgate, one of the translations, called it that. But it was a hill outside of the city. And on this hill, the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified. Now, it's important to pause and to understand what that actually means, because John, as he records it, just gives you a brief statement about it. To be crucified means that Jesus was laid flat on the ground on a horizontal and a vertical beam. To be crucified means that Jesus had nails driven into his hands across that horizontal beam, and his feet would have been laid over one another, and a spike would have been driven through his feet. This was to keep someone from falling off the cross. Once these soldiers had nailed Jesus on this cross, a group of them would have gathered around, and they would have hoisted Jesus up and placed him in a prefabricated hole in the ground. And so that cross would have locked into that ground. And the way that the suffering of the cross emer emerged was when you were hanging there, the full weight of your body was on the cross. You were, you were hanging there. And the only way you could get a breath was for you to push yourself up on the cross and breathe and take a breath only to slide back down and have the full weight of your body there so that you couldn't breathe any longer. 
The reason the cross is so painful is because it delays death. The cross deliberately slows death down so that someone's experience hanging on that cross was equivalent to being tortured slowly to death. Most people, it took them several days to die on a cross. The cross was not meant to just end someone's life. It was meant to humiliate them publicly. Because eventually, someone just became unable. The strength was not there for them to push themselves up, and they could no longer breathe, and their heart would finally just just give out. One of the things I think is going on here as to why John doesn't elaborate on what the cross means is because to his original hearers, they associated the cross with an incredible amount of shame. The cross was reserved for people who were the lowest of low criminals. You see, a Roman citizen in this time would never have faced a cross The only reason a Roman citizen would ever have faced a cross was for the worst of crimes, treason. That was the only way a Roman citizen would ever face a cross because it was so horrible for them to even consider being killed in that way. The cross instead was reserved for slaves, for murderers, for thieves, for people they deemed to be a threat to Roman stability. There was so much shame associated with the cross. In fact, that one of the earliest signs we have of a cross, archaeologically speaking, is found in Rome. In Rome, they have found the remains of a school where imperial pages, servants of the Roman Empire, were trained. And in this school, there's a, a comic kind of drawing, a gra- kind of graffiti on the wall in which someone's drawn a cross and put Jesus there. But in place of Jesus, the earliest drawings we have of the cross are somebody superimposing a donkey's head over our Savior. And they show in this picture this person supposedly worshiping what they say is this donkey man on a cross. Now, why would they draw that? It's because they associated the cross with shame. They associated the cross with dishonor. They associated the cross, again, with the lowest of lows. And so it's mind-blowing, really, to think that the early church decided to have as their symbol the cross. Many of you this morning may be wearing a cross on your necklace or you've got some piece of clothing or a ring or something that has a cross on it. It doesn't register that way with us. But in the New Testament, the cross was associated with shame and dishonor and slavery, with capital punishment. It was a horrible kind of image. This is why the Jews get so mad that Pilate writes above Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. We read a few moments ago that they've become angry that Pilate's written this. You see, they crucified people in public places. Though it was outside the city, it would have been a place that many people would have walked by. And the Jews were upset because for them to associate their king with a cross was a scandal. It was an embarrassment. And so they say, take that down. Write that he said that he was the king of the Jews. Don't write that. 
Pilate digs in, but the point that we should recognize is that even for the Jews, not just for Romans, but for Jews, it was a scandal. It was a a source of shame. The Bible says that anyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed. The Jews began to associate that with not just being hung on a tree, like being hanged, but they began to associate that with the cross. They saw Jesus as not the blessed Son of God. They saw him as a cursed criminal they were happy to see die. Now, here's the point I want to make to you this morning. Jesus endures this incredible suffering and shame because our sin demands it. God, the Father, introduced His Son into human history at the point in which humanity had invented the cruelest form of execution ever invented. God waited till humanity came up with the cross to introduce his son because that's what our sin deserves. We see this kind of play out in other areas of life. There's kind of a principle in medicine. The seriousness of your illness determines the intensity of the treatment you'll receive. So I know as I look around the room at many of you that many of you have been through the pain of cancer. Cancer is probably one of the most serious illnesses, problems, medically speaking, that we face as a culture and as a race. And because cancer is so serious, it demands an incredibly intensive treatment. In fact, I know some of you that have cancer have decided, I'm not going to have the treatment because the treatment is so intense, I think it would kill me quicker than the cancer. The treatment for cancer is intense because the disease of cancer is serious. What I want you to know is this. Our disease of sin is so serious that it demands the treatment Jesus receives on the cross. The seriousness of your disease and your illness dictates the intensity of the treatment you receive. Never forget this, church. What we see Jesus endure is what we should have received. So here's a question I have for you to think about this practically in your life, okay? If our Savior endures this kind of physical suffering and shame, should we expect lives of comfort and ease? If Jesus endures pain and heartache and embarrassment and shame, At this level, and if we're following him, should we always expect to have things go our way and live lives free of suffering and difficulty? The answer is obviously no. I don't know how many of you are reading through the Bible this year with us. If you're new, we we have a plan that will take you through the Bible in a year. And, And right now we're reading through Leviticus. And some of you, I can see it in your eyes. You're just holding on by your fingernails. You're just barely holding on, reading about laws, about uh, impurity and uncleanliness and leprosy and all kind of manner of kind of 
why is this in the Bible kind of stuff? But remind me, help, help me remember, if someone is deemed unclean in the Old Testament for leprosy or some type of impurity, where do they have to go? They have to go outside the camp, right? They have to go outside where the people are. This is how leper colonies emerge, right? There's this separate place for them. When you see Jesus going out of Jerusalem, understand that he's being viewed as unclean. He's bearing the shame and the dishonor of going outside the camp to bear the sins of the people. So one of the reasons why Leviticus is important is it creates the categories for us through which we read the New Testament and understand the significance of what Jesus is doing for us. We're following somebody who went outside the camp bearing shame and reproach. Let me tell you why that's important for you today. There are going to be times and following Jesus, that you are going to be asked to go outside the camp and bear shame and reproach for following Jesus. For some of you that are in school, you're still students, sometimes that's going to be taking a stand for something you believe in that's very unpopular among your friends going a different direction than the people around you are going because you believe in what God's Word says. There might be some, some suffering, some, some feeling like an outcast that comes into your life. In our life group this morning, and the group I lead, we were talking about parenting and how challenging it is to not let our children's athletic and academic careers become what drives our family. Athletics and academics are incredibly important. But if my son doesn't go to every practice, he's going to fall behind. It's going to be okay. He's probably not going to play professional baseball anyway. (laughs) Nevertheless, we're going to trust that raising our children the way God calls us to and living those principles out as a family in a Christ-centered kind of way is going to be best for our children, even if it doesn't make sense to people around us. We're following someone who went outside the camp and bore reproach that none of us can even really fathom or compare our suffering to. Do not be surprised if God calls you to go outside the camp and bear some form of reproach or suffering. First lap Jesus runs is the lap of facing our suffering. Second lap Jesus runs is he finishes off our debt. He finishes our debt. Once Jesus has been crucified, he's hanging on this cross, nails in his feet, nails in his hands, nails in his feet, we begin, the camera begins to turn to some of the scene around the cross. The first place John's inspired camera turns to is the soldiers there tending to Jesus. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about the significance of their fulfillment of the Old Testament in a moment. But here's initially why I think John includes this. He wants us to understand that as these soldiers divide up Jesus' earthly possessions... 
the end of Jesus' life is drawing close. Jesus doesn't have a lot of time left. The soldiers know that once someone's crucified, it's just a matter of time before their life ends. So John shows us that Jesus' earthly possessions are being divided. The camera then moves to Jesus' family and some of his friends and some of the disciples. John is described there. You'll notice in your Bibles, it talked about the beloved disciple. John is there. Jesus' mother is there. Presumably, Jesus' father, Joseph, has already died because he's not in this scene. And they're gathered around there. Imagine showing up to see the execution of your family member and it lasting for several days. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, The Green Mile. Anybody seen that movie, Tom Hanks? Uh, There's a scene in the movie where um, an execution goes wrong. Um, I won't describe the scene in vivid detail, but the the execution and the electric chair are supposed to be very quick. Someone's supposed to die rather quickly. But in the movie, as the family gathers uh, through a series of events, the execution goes wrong through some foul play. And what's meant to be a quick, very uh, quick execution lasts for a very long time. And it's so horrible, so vile, that the people begin to get up and run out of the room because it's so awful. And when I read the fact that Jesus' mother and his disciples are gathered around the cross, understand that would have been a horrible scene to watch your own child, in the case of Mary, watch her son slowly drift away and die in a horrible way. But from the cross, as Jesus is suffering and dying, he looks at John, the beloved disciple, and says, I want you to take care of my mother. You see, John is again showing us as an eyewitness that Jesus' life is coming to a close. And in his final, final moments, he wants to take care of his family. But I want you to zoom in with me back in your Bibles in verse 28. Because it's in verse 28 that after we read about Jesus taking care of his family, his earthly possessions being divided up, that we see how Jesus runs across that finish line. Look at verses 28 through 30 with me and notice the words finish, fulfill, and complete. Notice how that theme bubbles up to the surface. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill or finish the scripture, I thirst. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, read it together with me, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In this moment, we are seeing Jesus run across the finish line of maybe the most significant moment and what he had come to accomplish in his earthly mission. The Bible tells us that Jesus knew that he was finished, that he had suffered, that he'd taken care of his family, that things were coming together perfectly in God's plan. He knew that what the Old Testament had predicted was coming to pass, just as God said that it would. And with all of those things coming together perfectly, Jesus declares in a loud voice, I have finished what I came to do. 
I have completed the work that I've come to accomplish on behalf of my Father and in your place as a human race. Now, what's really powerful about this is that John vividly describes how Jesus finishes. Notice in your Bibles again, the latter part of verse 30. It's very clear that John wants us to see this in a very unique light. He says that Jesus finishes by bowing his head and giving up his spirit. I want to draw two quick things, two points from the way Jesus dies in John's description, okay? Number one, I want you to see that Jesus dies because he wants to die. Jesus Christ dies because he's offering his life for you and for me. It would be a mistake to say that the Romans killed Jesus. It would also be a mistake to say that the Jews outmaneuvered Jesus and got him on that cross. It would also be a mistake to say that Jesus was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The reality is, especially from the Garden of Gethsemane forward, Jesus is strategically and intentionally going to the cross because he wants to do that. Jesus is not hanging on the cross at the coercion of any human person. He's not hanging on the cross because anybody has coerced him in any kind of way. Jesus is there totally because he wants to. One of the ways that I get my mind around this is I think about Jesus as the Passover lamb. John very intentionally has been talking about the fact that Jesus is dying on the cross around the time of the Passover. And you'll remember the Passover is when the Jews killed the lamb in the Old Testament, put the blood over the doorpost of their homes in Egypt, and the death angel passed over their homes and did not take the lives of their firstborn. John wants us to see that in a similar way, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He dies in our place. And when we put the blood over the doorpost of our hearts, God's wrath passes over us. Now, here's what's so compelling to me about that lamb image Jesus is the first lamb that stays on the altar of his own accord. Jesus is the first sacrifice that stays on the altar he's called to die upon under no coercion. You see, every other lamb, every other goat, every other bull, and every sort of animal in the Old Testament, if the the people sacrificing them had left their hands off of those animals, what do you think they would have done? (laughs) They'd have bolted for the door. They would have run away because they knew that that knife was an existential threat to them. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus stays on the altar of sacrifice because he's obeying the will of the Father. This is known as the passive obedience of Christ. 
He's letting these things happen to him, not because he can't stop them, but because he knows this is the only way that you and I can be forgiven. Now, second thing I want you to notice is if first Jesus dies because he wants to die, the second thing you need to recognize is Jesus dies at the plan of the Father. Jesus dies because this is the plan of the Father. The only way that God's wrath towards our sin can be satisfied is in Jesus Christ. Listen to what I'm about to say very carefully because I don't want you to misunderstand it. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, your biggest problem is God. The biggest problem you have today is not your mortgage. It's not some form of financial debt or obligation that you have. It's not relational problems in your family or your workplace. The biggest problem we have as humans is not systems of oppression or corruption in our world. The biggest problem we have is that we stand guilty before a righteous and perfect God. And the problem with that is because God is just and because God is holy and because God is also loving, he will punish sin. Without the punishment falling on Jesus, it stays on us. Now, wait a minute, Spencer. I I just don't know if I can buy into this view of God. You're saying that God is my problem? You're saying that because God is holy and just, he's going to punish sin? I thought God was love. I thought God was on my side. I thought he was here to make things better. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Um, I watched this past week with horror uh, the events that took place in Syria. Um, The regime of Bashar Assad uh, used chemical weapons on his own people, some of them small children. How many of you this week watched some of that on the news? Um, It was a uh, grisly picture, especially... With social media now, these things just go everywhere quickly, don't they? I mean, it felt like within moments, hours, there was video up on Facebook of children dying as a result of chemical weapons. And I don't know a human being alive that would watch those images and say, they wouldn't say, this is horrible. This is evil that wouldn't say that that this regime has committed war crimes, atrocities against humanity. Not a person on the planet, especially living in this country, that wouldn't make that assessment. And so imagine with me in your minds for a moment that we were able to put on trial the regime of Bashar Assad and that as a result of this trial, he's declared guilty in a jury of his peers, and that they give him the death sentence. They give him the death penalty. And imagine in your mind, if you can continue to do this, that as these men are brought forward that used chemical weapons on children, and as they're being brought forth between a a firing squad 
that some casual person walked by and says, hey, what are you guys doing? You you can't shoot people. What what are you talking about? How, How can you just line these guys up here and shoot them? And of course, everyone that's around there is going to look at them and say, don't you know what these people have done? Don't you understand that the only way to protect children in the future is to level this kind of sentence on these men in the present? Don't you understand that this is the just and the most loving thing in the world to do is to protect others that might be hurt by these people? You see, the reason we misunderstand justice is because we misunderstand the gravity of our crimes. The reason the holiness and wrath of God doesn't make sense to American minds is because we have no conception of the depths of our crimes before God. Because of our sin our rebellious hearts because we worship ourselves rather than God. We oppose God and we do not give him what he rightly deserves. And those are crimes for which we are guilty. And if that doesn't make sense to you this morning, let me just encourage you to consider that you may be misunderstanding the wrath and holiness and justice of God. Here's the point. The cross of Christ finishes our debt before God because it pays our sins and satisfies God's wrath. If there's nothing else you hear me say this morning, I want you to hear this. The cross impacts two directions. The cross impacts God and that it satisfies the justice that he's meeting out towards sin. But the cross can also impact us because when we repent and trust Christ, the cross brings forgiveness and healing to us. The cross of Jesus Christ stays God's hand of wrath towards you and me and at the same time makes it possible for us not to not just be under his wrath, but for us to know God as his child and as his friend. We often see pictures of the cross being a bridge between God and humanity. That's how I came to Christ, the bridge illustration. And on one cliff, you've got humans, and the other cliff, you've got God. And between us is a chasm called sin. And I remember when I was converted that I turned that page and that Bible study for kids, and I saw here was the cross making it possible for humanity to walk across that chasm and know God. How does the cross do that? The cross does that because in Jesus and his death, the wrath that we should have gotten is poured out on Jesus. And simultaneously, it's making it possible for you and I to know this God as his friend. The great news about the gospel is that you and I, though our greatest problem is God, God himself has made it possible for us to know him. And the most important question you could ask yourself as you're listening to this this morning is simply this, do I know this God? Do I know him? Do I know him as a friend, as his child? 
Not just do I know about him. Not just do I know about what he's done for me, but do I know him? Do I know that in Jesus Christ, I've trusted him and him alone, and he's taken the penalty that I should have gotten? Do I know Jesus like that? The great news is the third lap that Jesus runs in this passage shows us how we can know him more explicitly. The third lap Jesus runs, and this is how we'll close this morning, is that Jesus finishes our redemption. Verses 31 through 37, I won't read it. We read it a moment ago. Record that the Jews come to Pilate. They want the legs of these people being crucified, broken, so it'll speed up their death. It was the Sabbath. They didn't want dead people hanging on a cross, especially on the Sabbath of the Passover. And so they asked that they would expedite their demise because if their legs were broken, they could no longer push themselves up and breathe. They would die very quickly. One by one, they go to the men that are on these crosses. They come to Jesus. He's already dead. And then John makes an important point that I want you to look in your Bibles and notice. All of these things are happening. John tells us in verse 35, look at this with me. says, he who saw these things has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth. Here's the purpose for this narrative. That you also may, read it with me, believe. Jesus went through all of these things, and John is telling us this so that we may believe. At four points in this passage, we see the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. We saw it in the casting of lots. We saw it in Jesus receiving sour wine to drink. We saw it in the fact that his legs weren't broken because Jesus was already dead. And we also saw it in the fact that they pierced his side. Three of those references come from Psalm. The fourth comes from Zechariah. Here's the point, okay? The point is this. John wants you to understand that because God's promises in the Old Testament have been fulfilled completely and perfectly in Jesus, we living today in the New Testament can trust what God's word says today. Can I really trust that if I turn from my sin and trust Jesus, that he's gonna take my penalty and make it possible for me to be forgiven? How can I trust those things? Because we can show you time after time after time after time that God's promises in the Old Testament have come to fruition If you want to know if you can trust Jesus today, look at the promises that God has already kept to us. He will keep you. He will hold you fast until the end because we know that God's promises never fail. Now here's what the Bible says. If we repent of our sin, that is we turn from our sin and trust Jesus, as John calls us to trust him here, There's a divine exchange that Jesus offers you and me today. And here's the divine exchange. We get Christ's righteousness, and he exchanges that for our sin. There's a trade that happens when we trust Christ. We get his righteousness, and he gets my sin. One of the most beautiful stories that we see in the New Testament about this very thing is the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son is a story of two sons 
the younger of which comes to his father and says, Father, I wish you were dead. I want my inheritance now. Thank you very much. The father reluctantly gives the son what he would have received upon his death. The son leaves, goes off to a faraway country, and the Bible tells us that he blows all of this money in living in sinfulness and and kind of disobedience. After blowing all this money, the Bible says that he ends up in utter destitute and poverty, feeding pigs. In fact, he's so destitute, he's so poor, he's longing for the food that the pigs are eating. The Bible tells us that at one point the son comes to his senses and says, what am I doing? Why am I eating this food? I could be a servant in my father's house and have it better than this. And so he gets up and he runs back to his father's home. And the Bible paints a beautiful picture that when the father sees the son running a long way off, he runs to his son. And the son begins to confess his sin. The son says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And upon this man's confession of his sin, the father throws his arms around him. And what the Bible tells us is that he takes off the rags of poverty and destitute. And what does he put on him? He puts on him the robe of a son. The Bible says that he puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. What Jesus offers you today is that kind of divine exchange. When you repent of your sin and trust Jesus. He takes off the rags of sin and bondage that you're in because of the darkness of your heart and he gives you a new heart and he clothes you in his righteousness and the riches of his grace. That's what Jesus offers you. And so the question stands, have you been reconciled to God? Do you know that you've placed your trust in Jesus because he has to take your penalty and you need the forgiveness that he offers. The way that you and I receive that is we repent of our sin and trust Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, our appeal to you, our call to you is to turn from your sin and trust Jesus. But as I often say, turning and trusting is not just an activity for non-believers. Turning and trusting is also what those of us that know Christ are called to do every day. When I see my sin in my life, when I see me running after all the wrong things, when I catch myself finding my identity in something other than Jesus, what we're called to do is to turn from that and trust Christ afresh. One of the ways that God helps us do that is he gives us an opportunity to remember this through a meal called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time when we remember what Christ has done for us. I grew up in churches where one of the ways people responded during the invitation or response time was to rededicate their lives. How many of you ever heard of rededication of your life? Okay. I would remind you that the Lord's Supper is the God-ordained way not only to remember what Christ has done for us, but to recommit ourselves afresh to what Christ has done. If baptism is your wedding ceremony when you're celebrating your faith and you're professing your love for Jesus, 
The Lord's Supper is where we renew our vows. That's why we do it once a month here, as we renew our love and our devotion to Jesus. So let me tell you how to use this time profitably as we celebrate this. A profitable, effective use of your time during this meal is not making your grocery list. It's not thinking about the million gazillion things you got to do this week. A profitable use of this time is to give thanks for what Jesus has done for you and to recommit yourself afresh to Christ. To ask him to point out areas of your life where you're not following him. To ask him for wisdom in areas where you're seeking his guidance. That's what this time is about because that's the focus of this time. If you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here, but we're going to ask you not to take this with us. And it's not because we don't love you. We do love you. We're glad you're here. But if you're not a Christian, this is a meal that's reserved for people who are professing their faith and recommitting themselves to Christ. So if you're not a Christian and you're here and you want to use this time well, think about what you've heard this morning. Consider whether you're ready to walk across the line of faith and turn from your sin and trust Christ. My prayer for us is this, is that as we celebrate this meal, that we would use it as a time to remember and give thanks, but also to rededicate and recommit ourselves to Christ. Would you pray with me, please, church? Father, we pray that as we celebrate this meal, God, that we would remember afresh and give thanks for what you've done for us, And Lord, that we would take time to prayerfully consider how we're following you, asking for your grace and your guidance as we continue to trust you. Lord, please bless this time of remembrance and gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray.